Hey there, got some exciting news for you. The BlockWorks Podcast Network is hiring two podcast hosts for an upcoming show called Lightspeed. The vision for Lightspeed is an exploration into crypto from the angles of builders and engineers who are designing for scale and whose goal is to bring the next billion users into digital assets. If this sounds like you and you want to join me on the BlockWorks Podcast Network, go to blockworks.co slash careers. Links in the description. Thanks. I'm here to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Jared Dillian, author at the Daily Dirt Nap and publisher of the newly out book, Those Bastards, 69 Essays on Life, Creativity, and Meaning. Jared, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How have you been? Hey, I've been great. Thanks. Glad to hear it. Jared, I first want to start off by sort of rolling out the red carpet for you, which you know, I rarely do for Forward Guidance guests of the last time you were on this program was at the beginning of September 2022, last year. And that was the sort of peak of oil and natural gas mania, where prices were close to their peak. They had fallen a little bit down from the summer, but everyone was still beating their chests. And you put out a video that I think the the title of it, that uh, I based on your quote, was speculators will get crushed. And if they cap gas prices, speculators get crushed, right? Or they just bring in a shitload of LNG, which I think is already happening. And <laughs> natural gas prices have fallen from about seven or eight dollars to close to two dollars, and the price of oil uh, also fell sharply, even though it's had a, a, a pretty significant rebound over the past uh, uh, month. But I think you you stopped being bearish before then. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about how is that indicative of your process, which Jared I think is unlike many other professional investors uh, in that it's based on sentiment. What were you seeing that sort of gave you a little tell into, into why you made this call? Well, I mean, I trade strictly based on sentiment and I don't, I, I'm going to beat my chest also a little bit here. Uh, I don't know anyone else who was bullish in 2020, bearish in 2022 and bullish again this year. And you got bullish in October, 2022 you got bears before it got bullish. Yeah, your t timing has been uncanny. And I remember listening to a podcast early October where you were bullish. And I was like, I like Jared, but he's so wrong. He's so wrong. <laughs> and oh, you're you, talking you about like, stocks here. You're talking about stocks. Stocks. Yeah, stocks. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I mean, my process is based around sentiment. And I just pay attention to the things people are doing, the things people are saying. And when trades get crowded, I go the other way. And we've had... You know, since you brought up energy, we've had the opportunity to see some pretty crowded trades. Basically, what I was saying on Twitter is that in oil and natural gas, there were too many assholes. There were too many assholes in the trade, which is kind of my trademark saying on Twitter. The, the problem with fundamentals is that basically the, the trade is most compelling when the fundamentals are bullish. But when the fundamentals are bullish, like that's usually when the trade is the most crowded. And, and people say, well, it can't go down because all the fundamentals are bullish. And I'm like, it, does, it doesn't matter. It's just positioning. Like the trade is too crowded. Like there's nobody left to buy. So anyway, I got bullish on energy about a month ago um, with, I think with oil in the low seventies. And um, I think, I do think we're going to get another leg up. Uh, I think we're going to put in uh, highs probably above 120, which is where we got before. This, you know, over the course of a year or two, um, we're still working off some of that sentiment. But yeah, 
Yeah, that's that's my process. And another trade you've recently opined on, it hasn't played out yet, is commercial real estate office buildings. A lot is privately held, but some are in real estate investment trusts. Uh, that are they're funded, but with debt and as interest rate rise, their interest expense uh, rises. Although uh, you know many many hedge, actually the vast majority of publicly traded REITs hedge. Anyway, backstory is these real estate investment trusts, SLG, VNO, have collapsed in value, and many short sellers have made a lot of money. I've seen them, you know, talking about this going back to 2020. It didn't play out in 2021, but over the past year, these real estate investment trusts have collapsed in value. And Jared, you said something on Twitter. We can put it up on screen. Something to the effect of after they, you know, a week ago after they collapsed in value, that it's the most crowded trade out there, and that these, you know, hedge fund, it's these these hedge fund managers who are short the office REITs are going to get their heads caved in. <laughs> Tell us your reasoning there. Well, you know the the uh, the REIT that I have in um, the portfolio of my newsletter, uh, the Daily Dirt Nap, is SLG. SLG is a New York City office REIT. It's a $1.2 billion market cap. Like it is, it is basically a micro cap at this point, and it pays a 14% dividend. And what I saw was the volume on this trade was cranked up to 11 just a couple of weeks ago. Like you, people couldn't get more bearish on commercial real estate. And when everybody's thinking alike, nobody is thinking. And that's usually the point at which something's going to bounce. And, you know, I, I, Highly doubt that New York City office REITs or any office REITs are going to zero. Uh, I think even even if you're wrong on the trade, it's a pretty good opportunity to collect a 14% dividend. Um, so I think there's a lot, there's a margin of safety that you have. But yeah, I mean, you know, anybody listening to this podcast right now, if you go back a couple of weeks ago, that's all people were talking about on Twitter was commercial real estate, you know, and yeah. Another one that I did uh, about a month or two ago was short-term rates, you know, mm. um, I because of the attention that was focused on the front end of the yield curve, people buying T-bills, uh, people putting their money in money market funds. Um, Taking money out of banks, putting it into, into money market funds. Yeah. The consensus was that the Fed was going to hike forever. And the front end of the yield curve, yields would go up and up and up. Uh, and then you had a 10 standard deviation move the other way, you know, and the, you saw hedge funds get carried out. So, um, yeah, like we, I mean, we can do this all day long. Like sentiment trading always, always works. And the fundamentals for offices are weak. And anyway, I've looked into SLG probably not as much as you. But you know, there's a, there's a chance that dividend might get cut, or that what they're currently earning is less than the dividend. So something's, but but that's already baked into the price. Is the point? Oh, and for that, sure. Yeah. yeah, people have already sold it and sold it so short. And you know, many very smart short sellers have made a lot of money uh, shorting it. But I, yeah, I don't I don't see them tweeting about it anymore. It's it's only sort of the people on Twitter who are not institutional people who are sort of uh, just talking about the, the, the hot thing that are, they're shorted. And this is also a point, Jared, that you mentioned earlier at the peak in prices for a bull story or at the nadir in prices for a bear story. That's always when people are the most feverish in their opinion. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, the bull case is always most compelling on the highs. The bear case is always most compelling on the lows for sure. 
So, you know, I mean, look like it, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot for this to be like a really big winner. You know, SLG, I'm looking on my screen, it's trading at 23 and change. You know, I mean, I, I think, I think it could easily bounce to 40 over the next few months. I mean, you can make almost a hundred percent. So um, the short interest is about 20%, which is high for a REIT. You don't usually see REITs with 20% short interest. Because they have to pay that dividend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about that. There's a 20% short interest on a REIT that has a 14% dividend. So what, what about sentiment for the general market? Stocks, I guess we could say Bitcoin, but mainly stocks. I feel like there was a bearishness that had gripped many in the market, many on Twitter, definitely gripped me that after the foul of Silicon Valley Bank, and yet stocks seemed to rally and lift higher, you had the Fed's balance sheet creep up because of these new lending facilities. To me, it seems like the sentiment is more bullish than it was a month or two ago, uh, or definitely four months ago. What, what do you think? Well, it's definitely more bullish than it was four months ago. But I mean, if, if I asked you four months ago that uh, we'd be coming up to 5% in Fed funds, and the 16th largest bank in the United States would have failed as a result of it. And I asked you where the S&P 500 would be. You'd probably say it'd be below 3,500. Yes. And right now it's at 4,130, right? So there was a chart that was getting passed around last week about um, speculator, basically hedge fund uh, short positioning in S&P futures, how it was the highest that it was since 2011. I guess during the European debt crisis, um, and that that's that's a pretty important chart. I think. I mean, I think I think that tells you how people are set up. Like, se- like even though sentiment is better than it was four months ago, it's still really, really bad. It's still really bad. Uh, and my view all along was that we would get a squeeze up to about forty four hundred, maybe even forty six hundred at which point you would have an opportunity to lay out one of the greatest shorts of all time. Like, I still think, I still think that's going to happen. Knowing what I know, and the professionals must know this, just about diversification and how the S&P 500 and, and in indexing has enormous benefits. It always interests me that people think, oh, I'm going to own my stocks because I'm so smart. I know what's going to go up and I'm going to short the index. I don't think that has a very good track record. <laughs> especially not this year yeah i mean i i saw a bloomberg headline that um the largest percentage of active managers are underperforming this year since fill in the blank i can't remember what year but jared but it's, is, haven't we heard it's a stock pickers market no this has not <laughs> been a stock pickers market not this year last year was 2022 was but it hasn't been this year um, I mean, basically, ever since Silicon Valley Bank, it's been all the mega cap tech stocks that have rallied um, because they're sort of remote from this interest rate risk. So uh, that's really throwing everybody for a loop. I mean, you know, some of the portfolios I'm, I, I, I run model portfolios for Malden and, you know, I'm underperforming the index, not by a lot, but I'm underperforming by about 3% which, you know, in the span of one quarter is pretty significant. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the only way that you would be keeping up with the index is if you own the FANG stocks and nobody thought that was going to work this year. So, 
there's something, you know, Jared, within the investment community of they're always trying to get away from the Fang stocks, but it's like they're, they're the best companies. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I don't think Netflix is like the best company, but like, well, they also got the best really companies. cheap. They got really cheap. Like yeah. Facebook, Meta was had like, Meta had a, a lower price to earnings ratio than. Exxon Mobil, I think. It's, I know. It's crazy. I know. They got really, really cheap. And Google got pretty cheap. And they all got pretty cheap. So, yeah. I mean, maybe it was obvious. It's always obvious in, in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is some of the most overvalued stuff in the market right now? Uh, you know, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, we know it was the richly valued technology stocks in 2022 that had a, a absolutely abysmal year. Uh, what sticks out to you as overvalued? Definitely not the the, the office REITs. Or That's other way, oh, undervalued, undervalued. You can go either way. Uh, well, I mean, I, I will say the most interesting sector right now is healthcare. Um, and farmers in particular, not necessarily biotech, but farmers in particular. Um, you know, if you buy a value stock, the idea is that you're buying a cheap asset and the valuation will someday expand and return to fair value or get rich and then you can sell it, right? That's that that's value investing, right? Mm -hmm. And value investing since, basically since 2010 has been you buy a cheap value stock and the valuation never expands and it's a value trap. I mean, that's been value investing for the last 10 years. And what I think is interesting about some of the pharma stocks, the pharma companies, is that these value stocks have the potential to turn into growth stocks. And there's a lot of exciting things. And I'm not a, I'm not a drugs expert by any stretch of the imagination, but there is some really exciting stuff going on out there. I mean, two big examples are Eli Lilly and um, Novo Nordisk with the weight loss drugs, right? And I was, you know, I was kind of early to talk about that last year. Yes, you were. And those are... You cannot call those value stocks anymore. Those are growth stocks. I mean, when you talk about these weight loss drugs, they have, I mean, that's a, that's a TAM of like a trillion dollars. That's a trillion dollar opportunity, you know, and there's, but there's other, it's not just the weight loss drugs. There's a lot of other drugs in these pipelines that are going to turn these value stocks into growth stocks. That's where I see the opportunity. Yes, TAM is total addressable market. The idea, oh, this market is so big, we can get X or Y percentage of it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, value stocks, first you said value stocks haven't performed since 2020. I think a lot of those value stocks didn't perform because the fundamentals didn't perform. It's not like the, they grew their earnings at 20%, but they remained cheap, right? Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. 
Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Let's talk about gold. Yeah, gold is super interesting. So uh, we're about 40 bucks off the highs. We formed a little bit of a triple top. The way it was explained to me in technical analysis was that there is no such thing as a triple top. There's double tops. But if you make a triple top, it's going to break through. Um, sentiment is getting a little bit hot. Uh, I think it's getting hot on the retail side. Um, I'm hearing some stories about how uh, the bullion dealers, uh, the retail bullion dealers are running out of inventory. They can't get inventory. Um, I think retail investors are um, getting a little bit bullish on gold. But on the institutional side, I really don't see a lot of interest. Now, my friend Brent Donnelly, who I've known for years, I mean, almost 20 years at this point, um, he put out a chart today of it was a Google Trends chart uh, the search term, how to buy gold. And the chart showed that interest in how to buy gold was as high now as it was in 2011, which was the big, big top in 2011. And, you know, I, I the, the chart is what it is. I don't really know how Google computes those trends, but I can tell you I was there in 2011 and in 2011, people were bananas about gold. Peter Schiff was on CNBC all the time. You had these cash for gold stores. I mean, it, was in a, it really was a bubble. Gold was in a bubble in 2011. And the sentiment today is nowhere near that point. It is getting, it's getting hotter, which makes sense because gold has rallied quite a bit. But we're nowhere near those levels of sentiment. And... The, you know, it, it was so low six months ago. You, things don't really take, you know, for individual stocks, things can take be a bubble in six months. But the gold bubble in 2011 had been building for close to a decade, right? Yeah. I mean, basically since the year 2000. Yeah. In 2000, gold was about 250 an ounce. And in 10 years, it went to 1900 an ounce. So. Right. Okay. So you're, people know you were a long-term gold bull. But uh, short term, what conclusions are you drawing based on the sentiment, based on the price action? Uh, I guess I'm bullish short term and long term. I mean, I try not to let two days of price action influence my thinking. You know, I don't really like how it got up to 2040. I think it was 2047 was the high and then failed. Um, but, but like I said, like two days of price action doesn't really mean a lot. Um, and like I said, there's no triple tops. So I do think we're, I do think we're going to break through that resistance at some point. Um, maybe in the next couple of months, I'm not really sure. Jared, I'm something of a technical analysis skeptic and I've, I've trying, always trying to be open and I know there is wisdom, but you have a phrase like there are no triple tops. Tell me how you sort of, I mean, there must be some triple tops, right? Like how do you, how do you sort of think about that? Uh, I, I literally have never seen one in my entire life or yeah. triple bottoms. Yeah. Jared, what about gold mining stocks? Some of the worst businesses on the planet. Everyone knows this. That's why they're valued so cheaply. But I mean, I'm not going to name tickers because they're small cap. I don't want to manipulate anything, but like there are gold stocks that are ridiculously cheap, but perhaps they should be, you know, with the exception of the last two days, 
Um, you know, there's been a period of time in the last month or so where GDX has actually outperformed GLD and by quite a bit, actually. It was really the first period of sustained outperformance of the miners versus gold in a long time. And it happened very quietly. And it kind of made me wonder if there is a large entity, asset manager, hedge fund that was making a large allocation to the miners. And when I say large, like in the billions, like a couple of billions, like VWAPing into a position over a period of a month. Uh, that's what it seemed like to me because the outperformance did not really coincide with uh, gold ripping higher. You know what I mean? So, yes. And Jared, I don't follow this closely enough to have witnessed this firsthand, but I've seen you write about it. And I've heard other you know, people who I respect talk about it, just how horribly gold trades. You know, it will go up a dollar, go up a dollar, and then just crash $20. What what's going on with when you say gold trades like shit? You know, I've, what what is it? What do you mean by that? Back last year, when gold went from twenty sixty down to sixteen hundred, I mean the price action, you know, on an intraday basis was always terrible. Uh, they were starting to get some conspiracy theories about the eight thirty gold smash, like because you'd walk in in the morning and eight thirty a.m. somebody would slam gold down twenty bucks. And so there were starting to be some conspiracies, conspiracy theories about that. And you might put one or two days of rally together and then it would sell off for three or four days. I mean, it was just brutal price action. Um, and, you know, since the lows, I forget how long ago, maybe six or eight months ago, the price action has been a lot better. So how much do you think about gold as an asset that does well during inflation to hedge future inflation, inflationary expectation, real rates, you know, inflation adjusted rates. I, you know, I think gold has a very weak correlation to inflation on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis on a 10 or 20 year basis. I think it has a strong correlation to inflation, right? But there's a lot of noise in between, you know what I mean? So yeah, and it sometimes happens before the inflation happens, which I know that sounds very wishy-washy to people who are you know already skeptical. But like the the huge gold of price appreciation from March to June 2020, perhaps that was you know the monetary uh, printing that occurred, and then the inflation didn't happen until 2021 and 2022. So if you're just looking at the periodicity, you're saying, oh, well, actually, as inflation rose, gold fell, and that's right. But it's it's about the time horizon. Yeah, I think the next big catalyst is May 3rd, the Fed meeting. I, I think if the Fed indicates that it's going to pause, then there's a pretty good chance we're going to break through the highs in gold. You know, Jared, I have, was uh, very reticent to share my own views because you know I, I don't want to share so many views and you know, some of them will be wrong. And I, I'm, I'm an interviewer. That's what I do. But I'd say my base case is 25 basis points hike in May, and then that's it for this hiking cycle. Uh, and by the way, that's not some revolutionary opinion. That's pretty much what the market's pricing in right now. Yeah, too. yeah, I think that's consensus. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't see. You know, we had an Empire State number that was pretty hot today, but I don't see that really changing the Fed's view. You know, I think it, we got one more twenty-five basis point hike, and we're done for a while. And even though that's priced in into the bond market, a lot of phenomenons where something you know the bond market's expecting X Y Z to happen on a Fed day. And exactly that happened. Powell says exactly what the bond market thinks. But then the, to the equity market, who wasn't following it that closely, it's news. Do you think it could be a phenomenon where 
it's the news is already priced into the bond market about this you know, could be the last hike in May. But do you think that there's gold could still rally because gold investors weren't thinking about it? It all depends on positioning. It all depends on the positioning. So if you come into an event and the event is already priced in, what determines the price action afterwards is how people were set up going into the event, right? Like, for example, if and when I, and when I say how people were set up, I really mean like fast money, okay? So if you have some macro hedge funds that are short gold going into the meeting and 25, you get a 25 basis point hike and the market and gold does not sell off, they will be forced to cover and that will push gold through new, new highs. So even though it's already priced in, it's, it depends on the positioning going into the event. And the tough thing about positioning is that, you know, there is some data on it. You have the commitment to traders reports and stuff like that. But on a short-term basis, it's really hard to tell how people are set up. And Jared, how are you thinking about bonds? Bonds, long-term treasury bonds performed horribly in 2022 as interest rates rose, as inflation was higher than expected. What do you think about uh, bonds going forward? Uh, so as of a couple of weeks ago, I started to get pretty bullish on bonds, mostly on the basis of the chart. Had a beautiful looking chart, cup and handle. It was. It looked like it was going to you know, looking at TLT, it looked like TLT was going to break out higher. And over the last three or four trading days, that's kind of collapsed. Um, today is a pretty bad day for fixed income. Um, so I think that thesis might be broken. I don't know. We'll find out in the next couple of days. So, right. Well, I've always been in the camp that, you know, I always, I, I never believed that we were going to get five, five and a half, six percent interest rates. I always believed that the bond market was going to rally. It did rally about a hundred basis points or more. So, you know, really, honestly, we're kind of in the middle of the range here, and I don't think there's much to do. And how are you estimating the health of the economy? The labor market has remained very strong. You know, uh, uh, other economic metrics about. Uh, you know, industrial production, um, services, they've sort of gradually, the economy's economic growth is gradually sort of winding down. Um, yeah, I mean, do you think we're headed for a recession, having already been in a recession in 2022? Some people think that, we, you know, the inflation, uh, two consecutive quarters of negative real GDP growth, real being inflation-adjusted GDP, that we already had the recession. So actually, we're at the, we're at the beginning of a new boom. So where are you on that spectrum? If we experience a recession, it's going to be very different from any recession that we've already had. I mean, you can have a recession in the context of inflation, but what inflation does is it speeds up economic activity, right? Because people are buying more, they're buying faster, speeds up economic activity, and it doesn't really feel like a recession, which is what people have been saying all along. Like, we're in a recession. It sure doesn't feel like a recession. Well, it's because this is an inflationary recession. Mm -hmm. The recessions that we had prior to this, like if you want to talk about the financial crisis in 2008, that was a deflationary recession. And by definition, most recessions are deflationary, but not this one. Right. So what do you think going forward for the economy? You know, I, I do think that the labor market will weaken a little bit. I think you'll get unemployment eventually go out to four and a half or five percent. That's that's about it. I've heard some theories as to why that would not happen. Um, 
you know, the, you know, aside from empire state today, the manufacturing surveys have been pretty terrible, um, which gives you an idea of sort of the health of, you know, the real economy, but I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, I've heard some smart people say that we're going to get rate cuts by the end of the year. Um, you know, right, right now we're pricing in about one and a half rate cuts before the end of the year. We, we, before we were pricing in like two, three, four rate cuts, like mm-hmm. during the SVB stuff. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, the economy would have to weaken. You'd have to get some pretty negative data in order for the fed to completely pivot and get those rate cuts at the end of the year. I don't know if it's going to happen. I just, I'm kind of agnostic on it. Yeah, uh, me too. Jared, now I want to ask you about your, your latest book, Those Bastards. What motivated you to, to write this book? And you know, what, what can people sort of expect from this, your latest? Uh, well, this book is a collection of essays. Okay. So this started, uh, I was taking a class for my MFA program. Uh, it was called Writing for Digital Communication. And the class was, the main project in the class was to start a blog. So I started a blog on Substack. It was called We're Going to Get Those Bastards, uh, which is the quote from Dick Fold on the trading floor. And I started writing these blog posts, which were basically essays about random shit. And it really took off. And then I got the idea, well, maybe I can turn this into a book. So for a period of about 10 or 11 months, I wrote 69 essays, turned them into a book. Uh, 10 of them are actually new, 59 of them I had printed online, but 10 of them are new and are just, you know, are in the book. And the book is getting a, just a fantastic reception. Like people absolutely love it. There's, uh, there's a lot of life advice. There's a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of humor. Uh, some of it's poignant. Some of it's funny. Some of it's dark. Uh, it's, it's really a great collection of essays and people, like I said, people love this book. <laughs> so there's an essay in the book called are you lucky okay and you know i was i was uh i did some recruiting and i would interview people and you know we were attracting the best of the best you know these undergrads they all had 3.9 4.0 gpas they all had ridiculously high test scores they all did sports they all did activities basically they were all the same and i started you know, I was, I started getting bored in these interviews. I'm like, I'm just interviewing the same people over and over again. So I said, how do I differentiate between these people? And I started to ask in interviews, I said, are you lucky? Right? Because if you're on a trading floor and you're working next to somebody, you want to be working next to somebody who is lucky. You want to be working next to somebody where good shit happens to them all the time. You don't want to be working next to somebody who's like an error machine and losing money and bad shit happens to them all the time. So the, the, the responses I got were really interesting. Some people said, well, I think I'm lucky. And I said, I didn't ask if you thought you were lucky. I asked like existentially, are you lucky? So Jared, as always, you encapsulate like an immensely complicated philosophical idea into something that's superficially very simple. It's like, are you, are you lucky? Well, first of all, there's a couple of, does luck exist in the concept that, oh, in the past, I've been lucky. 
but that doesn't it's it's it doesn't mean I will be lucky in the future. You know, I guess gambler's fallacy is oh, if if the roulette reel has been you know you just came from Vegas has been a, a black ten times in a row, it must be red. I guess luck is oh, it will continue to be be red. Like everything is kind of random. Like if I made all this money on trade on Monday, on Tuesday, uh, why would that mean that I would make money again? Okay, maybe it's because of my skill, but that's not luck, you know. And obviously, I'm not saying I'm a skillful trader at all. Um. Yeah, and also, I, I mean, did, was the real reason that you asked this question just to th- throw people off? <laughs> no, no, I okay. genuinely wanted to work with people who are lucky, yeah. Okay, but def- how do you define luck? I mean, I feel like the origins of the term luck are very sort of like supernatural. Uh, how I you- define luck is that good things happen to you disproportionately more than they happen to other people. But because they did preparation, I mean, there's a quote like, the harder I work, the luckier I get that, you know, like, oh, if you, you know, you've put all this work into to write an excellent newsletter, write, write all these books, you've been lucky, and you had to be successful. So you've been lucky. But I feel like a really lucky person would be someone who was super successful because they didn't, and they didn't do the work. I really like the ultimate luck box is someone who, uh, you know, does a slot machine and wins $30,000 or wins the wins the lottery. You get, you, you get what I'm saying that like if I win the lottery, that doesn't mean that I'm going to win the lottery again. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, in the example that you said, the person who prepares and works hard and gets lucky, you know, um, like I don't care where the luck comes from. Right. I don't yeah. care how it happens. Like I just care that you're lucky, you know, so. Makes sense. Do you think that some of the people who said, I think I'm lucky, do you think that was humility either real humility or staged false humility because in a job interview you don't want to be like yeah i'm the smartest person you've ever met and i want to make you so much money. you know what i mean you don't want to come across as so aggressive i actually had one person say i am lucky it was a woman and she said i am lucky and these are all the reasons i'm lucky and she didn't you know Nobody knows the it's it's a very tough question because such a tough question pe- people are trying to figure out what i'm looking for right like the answer, the answer that the wrong answer is actually I'm unlucky. Like that's the wrong. Yeah, answer. yeah you'd never say that. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone because it's a job interview, everyone wants to give you the right an- the answer that yeah. you're looking for. You know, what's another essay that you're particularly proud of, or a lesson that you think for our audience would be, you know, something they they, they could take away from from it. Well, I did one about colonoscopies. We could talk about that, or I did one about sex dolls. We could talk about that. Um, uh. Sure. Let's do the sex. I didn't read. I'm I didn't just, read the whole Oscar one. Let's do the sex. Well, we'll talk. Uh, th- there's a really good one in there called Memento Mori, where I basically talk about the most important question that we will ever have to answer is what happens to us when we die. Like it's really the question of do do you go to heaven when you die, right? So there's been a lot of phenomenon called near-death experiences and they're happening more and more because you know after we figured out how to do cpr we could resuscitate people so as of about 1960 we started to get a lot of data on people who had near-death experiences and they came back and they told us what they saw and you can't study this quantitatively it's all anecdotes you're just talking to people who went through these near-death experiences but there's actually at the university of virginia there's um, there's an there's an entire department that is dedicated to the study of near death experiences. So what they find is that 
if you have a near-death experience, you usually review your life, all the mistakes you've ever made, and then you meet a higher power and you meet other people that have passed away that were close to you, like friends and family and stuff like that. And they talk about like a, you know, like a bright light and all this stuff, you know, but I think that's significant because people report the same phenomenon over and over and over again. Now, the other interesting thing is, is that about 20% of people have negative near death experiences. So when they die, they really, they come back and they say there were demons, it was hell, there was screaming, it was darkness. And people actually went to hell and they were resuscitated and brought back. And they found that, so about 20% of these near-death experiences are negative. And so they started to do some research on what types of people had these negative near-death experiences. So they interviewed people on death row, right? Like trying to see if they went to hell. And interestingly, like somebody on death row might've gone to heaven and a church going housewife might have gone to hell. And there was really like no correlation. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Well, I, I got a theory for that, Jared. I'm, I'm sure you've thought of it, that people on death row don't have a lot of moral guilt or compunction, and that's why they've committed these, you know, in some cases, horrific crimes. And a housewife who goes to church all the time, she's she's got a guilty conscience. You know, even though she's done done nothing wrong, probably, she's always thinking she's always got a guilty conscience, you know? Yeah, we we just we just don't know. We don't know. So I I basically that was an essay that talked a little bit about the science of near-death experiences. Uh, because yeah. I do think it's I think it's the most important question we have to answer. And how do you live your life in such a way that you have a good outcome when you die? You know? Hmm. Jared, you got one called finance is depraved. Why is finance depraved? <laughs> um, you know, I talk a little bit about how you walk into the offices of a hedge fund and they have like a Rothko on the walls uh, and they bought it for like $20 million, but they don't know what it means and they don't know what it stands for. Like they have no appreciation for art or culture. It's just gross amounts of money chasing these assets. Um, you know, I, like the culture of wall street, I, I didn't think this at the time when I was on wall street, but now that I'm away from it, you know, when I have a little bit of perspective, the culture of wall street really is depraved, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's it, it, it's really people chasing money all the time, you know, um, and there's a place for that. You know, that's fine in its place. 
but it sort of takes over your life and it becomes who you are and it affects your interactions with other people. So it is finance zero sum. The stock market tends to go up because businesses thrive. They have profits, they reinvest, give dividends. But if I, you know, if the market yields 10%, if you make 12%, so you have a 2% alpha, is that necessarily coming at the at negative 2%? I have to be making 8%. You know, what I, you know what I'm saying? In the in the long term, in the ultra long term, finance is not zero sum, but in the micro term, it absolutely is. You know, like if I make a penny on this trade, then you lost a penny because our time horizons are very short. So yeah. in the micro term, it's zero sum. Right. And, you know, there's there are different creative, different fields of of work, of, of endeavors, and some are zero sum. The ultimate zero sum is playing poker, being a professional poker player where I'm making money from you, you're making money from me. And that just has a very negative vibe where I feel like, you know, if you're a, a, you know, a kindergarten teacher, you're helping raise the next generation. And that's probably a little bit better for your mental health. Um, like, do you feel like that it has a similar vibe in finance where it's just kind of cutthroat and more than cutthroat, it's um, like non-generative yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, but I mean, you know, like I said, like I was part of that culture for so many years and it really took a lot of distance for me to sort of recognize it. So do you think it's foolish for people to try and beat the market for foolish for some people to try and beat the market, given that what we just just said, like if the S&P 500 returns 11 percent, you know, uh, uh, everyone wants to make 13%. Everyone wants to make 20%. Oh, I'm going to invest in all these risky things. I can make 100%. I, and then people go have YouTube videos. I'm not talking the YouTube videos, but the actual ads that go in YouTube videos of, of a video such as this, where they're like, I made all this money trading options. And if you take my course, you can do it too. I have a theory about this. And I'm, I, I actually might do an essay on this. Finance is entertainment. It's yes. all entertainment right? Because we all know we can't beat the market over a long period of time, right? But it sure is fun to try. Yes. Right? Like you can invest in an index fund and get the return of the market, but nobody wants to do that because it's not fun, right? Trading options is fun. I, I honestly believe that 80% of trading is purely for entertainment purposes. Yes. And people are going to People are going to do what they do. It doesn't make sense to like condemn people's decisions. But do you think? I mean, do you think the world would be a better place if we didn't have people like trying to be? You know, no, we would. It would absolutely be a worse place. Okay, know? tell me why. Well, I mean, just from a mechanical standpoint, if a hundred percent of the world was invested in the S and P five hundred, then basically every company in the index would be mispriced. Right. It's the actions of active investors that drive valuations to where they should be. Right. In the absence of those active investors, basically everything would be mispriced and it would be pure beta. Right. But, you know, Jared, in, in 2011, there were really smart investors who went on TV and said, Apple is so overpriced. I'm invested in this shipping company. That, and that shipping company is now bankrupt. Like the, the passive index tends to be right, right? I, I, don't, I don't know. You're, you're, and you're, there's a happy medium, Jerry, between, and it's weird, like things have gotten more passive, but it's, I just feel like there's so much trading. You know what I, you know what I mean? 
<laughs> there's it's so enter- much it's, it's entertainment there's so much trade. i mean it's literally free to enter a trade uh and there's you know payment for order flow but i mean do you think do you think robin hood is actually marketing like responsible investing they're marketing entertainment i mean look at the commercials right like this is fun you don't feel like there's a negative no i really don't i don't yeah, yeah. Um, but you you said finance is depraved, so that's that's why I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> is depravity, good. It's really more about the culture. It's about the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Um. Well, let's see. What I, I marked another one I wanted to ask you about. Oh, personal appearance. I think when we get dressed in the morning, we make a decision about what kind of message we are trying to communicate to other people about ourselves, right? Like what really the way the clothes you wear, the way you do your hair, jewelry, stuff like that. Like you are trying to, you're trying to send a message to other people that this is what they should think of you. Right. So it's really about signaling An economist would call it signaling. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have earrings, Right. I have this fancy shirt. Like, what am I signaling? You know what I mean? That you're a, a DJ. <laughs> you are a DJ. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you could diagnose me. I could diagnose myself about, yeah, I think as someone who's young and wants to be taken seriously, like I err on the side of being overdressed rather than being underdressed. I've got the bookshelf behind me. So it you know, makes it look like I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's definitely important. Um, what What are you trying to say about yourself when, with your sort of personal appearance? Or is it a choice or it's just the, that's the way people dress, you know? Um, I kind of go for the middle-aged rock star look. Yeah. Do you I always do that? Do you well. always do that? No, actually, I, I started doing that around 2019. Um, really? How did you dress like before? I, I wore suits every day. Really? Yeah, I did. I had no idea. I, I didn't know you till uh, 2020, 2021. So. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, you know, I, I live in Myrtle Beach and I'm in this office building and I would put on a suit with a tie and come to work every day in a suit and a tie. And I did that for like nine years. And eventually. To write the daily nap. Yeah. 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 I used to wear a suit and tie to come do the daily dirt nap. And it's day. not like, you know, your office, it's got thousands of people. Oh, Hey, Hey Bob, here's the report. Hey Janice. It's yeah. It was just yeah. me. Yeah. That's me. you wore a suit and tie. Wow. I, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, what made you switch? Uh, I started to get fat. <laughs> <laughs> I started to like, my suits weren't fitting. <laughs> that, hey, that's a, that's a good thing. So you, you think this, uh, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk. You think that's, you think this is going to be legit? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, the only question is whether the insurance companies are going to pay for it, you know? And I, it's, it's a really tough question because if they do decide to pay for it, they're going to be overwhelmed by the claims. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work out. So, but I took Ozempic for a couple of, a couple months. Um, and I lost, I lost like 22, 26 pounds, something like that. Like wow. it absolutely works. So 
I'm glad to hear it. Well, uh, Jared, it's been great getting you on Forward Guidance. You know, everyone you know, knows you on Twitter already, but you're at Daily Dirt Nap, uh, and that's the name of your, your newsletter, which people should check out. Your book is uh, uh, Those Bastards. Any closing thoughts? No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for letting me talk about the book. Um, definitely buy the book. Go to Amazon. Search for Jared Dillian, Those Bastards. And uh, it's, like I said, like the reviews are really, really good. People are enjoying it. Um, it's, it's in, in a lot of places, it's very uplifting. I think you'll like it a lot. So, well, uh, thanks, Jared. And, uh, thanks everyone for watching. Talk soon. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks macro or heard as a podcast on Apple podcast and Spotify episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple podcast. If you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.